Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Global Nutrition. I'm Joanna Cummings, and I'm honored to be your host this week for another fascinating story about nutrition from around the world. Our guest this week is Charlotte Stepling, Nutrition Program Manager at Operation Smile in Madagascar. Charlotte grew up in San Francisco and was well-traveled as a child and young adult. Her story takes us on a journey through her work in the Peace Corps to the founding of the Cultural Center of Hope and Mahareza Nutrition and Health Center in Madagascar. Charlotte attended Duquesne University, earned her MA in Justice and Public Policy with a concentration in Conflict Resolution. She's currently working on her MPH from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Charlotte joined the Peace Corps in 2012 and served in Madagascar as an English language education instructor, where she also served as the regional malaria coordinator for three years. It was through her tenure with the Peace Corps that she learned about the work being done by Operation Smile, a global organization that provides free cleft lip and palate surgeries. She personally escorted over 75 children to have this procedure done and became such a regular that Operation Smile offered her to join the team upon completion of her Peace Corps service. As the Nutrition Program Manager, she has implemented screening and interventions to improve the nutritional status of children prior to surgery, thereby improving outcomes and the quality of life in all the patients they treat. Join me today as we walk barefoot with Charlotte as she enthralls us with her stories of small acts of kindness that have changed the lives of hundreds, possibly thousands, over the course of nearly 10 years in Madagascar. Charlotte Stepling, welcome to Global Nutrition. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here and talk about just my journey in Madagascar and and really appreciate you spending the time with me. Oh, we thank you. Um, You know, tell us a little bit about yourself, Charlotte. I understand you grew up in the San Francisco area. Um, Your mom's French, your dad's from Pittsburgh, but that both have had quite an influence on your life. Give us a little background about your history and how you came to be in this position. Yeah, absolutely. It's my pleasure. So I'm originally from San Francisco, California. Um, Mother is from the south of France, and my father is American from Pittsburgh. I grew up in California pretty much my, my entire life, went to university on the East Coast. But during my childhood, my, my parents were a huge influence in doing good work, as I like to call it, um, really giving back to my community, but also through the travels that I was afforded as a young child and throughout 
my high school years, we would travel a good amount during the summers as my mother is a, or was a kindergarten teacher and director of a kindergarten school. She had the summers off and we spent a ton of time abroad in different countries, um, you know, primarily, of course, visiting those countries as, as tourists, but also ensuring that part of those travels and the, that trip, you know, was service oriented. So what did that mean? And what could we as, as individuals do on our small scale in order to give back to the community that we were traveling and visiting? Really, I think, you know, that, that idea of service and giving back was ingrained in me at a very young age. Furthermore, my uncle, who actually served um, in one of the first Peace Corps groups to, to, I guess, leave in the early 1960s. He, uh, or late 1960s, excuse me, he served in El Salvador and he would consistently talk about his service in the Peace Corps and the idea of national service. And again, representing, sure, you know, the United States and doing good, but also looking at longevity of of service and of care abroad when you want to do a project and being able to extend that to actually a two-year service time it was very alluring to me so I ended up you know getting this taste of wanting to do more wanting to go abroad and and fulfill this this passion of giving back um, through the Peace Corps. And now you are living in Madagascar. You've been there for nearly 10 years. Tell us a little bit about the country, its geography, some of the food and culture, and then some of the challenges maybe you see as well around food, nutrition, access to health care. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I guess I have been here just about 10 years. Time, time really does go by a little too fast. Um, so Madagascar is an absolutely beautiful country. It's the fourth largest island in the world with over 26 million inhabitants. So, I mean, quite a large population. Um, there's just about 22 different ethnic tribes that speak each their own dialect. So you have 22 different languages within the country. And it's an ex-French colony that received its independence in the 1960s. And although, you know, Madagascar is known for, of course, the infamous cartoon, it's also known for lemurs and having such an outstanding fauna and flora on the island. But what's really renowned, and I, I suppose a bit sad, is the healthcare system here. And access to basic healthcare is definitely weak. The healthcare system here in Madagascar is on a tiered system with private and public facilities. And at the lowest level of the health system and located in the most remote zones, you'll find community health workers, which primarily offer services to the population, again, living in very remote villages. These services can include vaccination, education around health, uh, family planning, maybe malaria prevention. And then you have a district level, which is consists of basic healthcare centers. So you'll have a, you know an actual physical building um, where nurses and midwives practice, and they offer their expertise. And then the next tier in that system is the regional level, where you'll have res- reference hospitals with a bit more human resources. You may have the possibility to provide, you know, these, these hospitals will provide certain surgeries and certain specialized care. And then the last tier in the system, which you'll you'll find at the national level, are the university health centers, which provide the most specialized care and surgery, but are only based in the largest cities, such as the capital. 
And here in Madagascar, over approximately 60% of the Malagasy people live more than 10 kilometers from a health center, often, again, in really remote and difficult to reach areas without you know, roads or communication. Oftentimes, again, health personnel are really unevenly distributed. And even if there are pharmacies or small shops that offer drug and medical supplies, these are prone to stockouts and, you know, unavailable in some areas. The other challenge or, or interesting facet of Madagascar and its health system is that the majority of the population prefers and often uses traditional medicine and traditional healers as their main healthcare provision. So it does add a level of complexity when you start talking about cultural norms and social behavior change within communities. You know, even in the context of COVID and vaccines, it does put another layer of, of challenges and, and barriers in place. So with your time uh, during the Peace Corps, you served in Madagascar and you were teaching English. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So I was teaching English as a Peace Corps volunteer in local high schools and local middle schools. And through that time, I understand that that's where you started to identify that these kids really had some significant barriers um, and challenges in coming to school and being able to access and have food and the services, the things they needed. And this kind of inspired you to start a cultural center that you named the Cultural Center of Hope. Tell us a little bit more about that center and how you came to to found it and, and what the current status is of it. Yeah, that's exactly right. So here in Madagascar, high schools are primarily located in larger towns, I'll call them. And the town or the village more so that I was posted in as a Peace Corps volunteer was 27 hours away from the capital city on the east coast of Madagascar. So, you know, beautiful village right on the beach with the Indian Ocean, had a high school. But this high school was the only high school in a radius or a range of around 50 kilometers. That meant that if you were a middle school student and you passed all your grades and your exams and were admitted and afforded the opportunity to go to high school, you physically had to move 50 kilometers to attend high school. With that being said, oftentimes these students would come alone. So you would see, you know, these ninth graders come as 14, 15 year old students and live without their families because their families primarily worked in agriculture and stayed in the villages where they're from, again, 50 kilometers away to continue working and and making a living. And they, as students would move to the village that I was in to attend high school. Oftentimes they would rent Uh, small straw huts. Um, They would live, you know, four to five students per hut in order to pay the rent and help each other out with cooking rice in the evenings, you know, lighting charcoal fires. Um, You know, obviously electricity and water were not at all readily accessible. So they had to go and fetch water daily, cook over open fire or small, small charcoal ovens and, and study on their own and really take care of themselves as adults, as again, these 14, 15 year old students. Um, so I noticed this and, you know, in conversation with the students that I had at the high school, and that was also another experience teaching, you know, 120 kids per class was an absolute challenge, um, <laughs> but a, a phenomenal experience. And, and with these exchanges really came to find out that 
you know, after classes were done, these students were going back to their small huts where they didn't have constant electricity or even maybe access to a light bulb. They were lighting candles and doing homework, you know, on, on either the ground or on a small table, on a natted mat, and, and didn't have a safe space to, to, again, grow and learn and develop. And so this idea came about with the community that I was living with, with the chief of the village and the teachers and the community to build a cultural center. This cultural center, you know, again, primarily served students of high school age and middle school age and was an opportunity for them to have a safe space to learn, to further their education. We offered English and we still do offer English, French, Malagasy classes. We also offered extracurricular activities such as Zumba and yoga and sewing classes. We had different sports teams. Um, we had we have solar panels that that are above the um, the structure of this cultural center that would provide consistent solar energy and electricity throughout the evening time so students could come and finish their homework and again a safe space and it was just an absolutely what I believe phenomenal simple solution to again enable students and and this youth to become you know adults that feel like they've been supported and that have the best opportunity at life as possible, specifically within their, their school age um, uh, time and, and the portion of the time that they were in school. Now, since, you know, having left uh, Peace Corps, I actually had the opportunity to pass this project along to my village, the village that I was living in. So it's fully run by, by the local community members, which is fantastic. And also by the Ministry of Education. So we had an official transition to the Ministry of Education here in Madagascar. It is seen as, you know, an official cultural center on the East Coast of Madagascar. So it's a, I think, you know, it, it's something that I'm very proud of. Absolutely. But I think what I'm, what I'm even prouder is to say that I was able to work hand in hand with the community and listen to their needs and help them believe in a project that they wanted so bad and just help them, you know, find that road and that journey to identifying solutions that can be based locally. That is so, uh, it's so inspiring and humbling to hear you talk about that, Charlotte. And I think so important for all of us to remember that, Right, that you you were there, you had immersed yourself and assimilated into the culture, and really had earned the trust of that community in order to really establish that center, and then to make it so successful that they are able to take that on and, and own it here front going forward, um, and that you were kind of more of an enabler, not not in there saying you need this. Um, they had already identified the need for it. You just helped them visualize and create this this center. So. I'm curious, how has the COVID-19 pandemic affected the operations at the center? Obviously, the pandemic has had a huge effect on, on, on the entire globe. 
specifically for the center, you, you know, the education system here in Madagascar took a hard hit, uh, similarly as, as across the, the world, with schools being closed. And unfortunately, we had to close this center as well. During the time that schools were closed, a lot of these students decided to actually go back to their home villages to help their parents, again, in the rice fields or picking cassava, again, in the sugarcane fields, um, everything that has to do with agriculture, which is really the primary workforce and, and job in on the east coast of Madagascar. So a lot of the students that would have attended the cultural center did, did go home. Do you anticipate, is there any scheduled time for return or are things still pretty limited in access? Yeah. So here in Madagascar, we're going through our second wave of the pandemic. They actually, we recently received donations of vaccines through COVAX and have started a vaccine campaign um, in the capital city, which is the most hit part of the, of the country. But now seeing that we're coming into summer break, we are hoping to actually open up the center again for summer activities. And then once school will come about again in late August, beginning September, the center will be open as usual. Again, we have to just be in line with the Ministry of Education's uh, priorities and protocols specifically around this pandemic. Well, I understand you're impactful work did not stop with just the cultural center. Throughout your time there, you also identified a need for a healthcare facility that could address and help treat malnutrition in children. And my understanding is then this came about the Mahareza Nutrition and Health Center. Can you tell us more about that and where that's located and how you got involved? So actually, I'd love to start off and explain a bit more of how we named this center, because I think it tells a lot about Malagasy culture and um, and just the beauty of, of the Malagasy people and the language in itself. So Maereza is a local word, and it actually sums up a multitude of meanings. Um, It means courage. It means lending a hand. It means belief. It means hope all in one word. And as I was working in the healthcare system in the local highlands, I often heard individuals in hospitals, in the maternity ward, in the triage ward, you know, say this word, this one word, maereza. And they would say it in passing. They would say it, you know, to give hope to different families that were going through hard times. They would say it to the healthcare workers that were very tirelessly working hours. And, and it was just such a strong and powerful word that I decided to name the organization that I founded, the Maereza Association. And we built a nutrition and health center in the local highlands in a city called Ansira Bay. It's about four and a half hours south of the capital city, Antananarivo. And here, they actually have a, a very high percentage of malnutrition and high percentage of stunting in all children. I was working at actually the local hospital at that time with Operation Smile. I had noticed that in this region that I was living in, there was an enormous amount of not only malnourished children and women and families, but actually really the 
the access to knowledge around nutrition, around water sanitation and hygiene, around nutritious foods and healthy food choices, and decided to found this nutrition center, which is run by community health workers, where we offer cures of spirulina, which is a green algae that has high protein and iron content. And so we give spirulina and yogurt or spirulina and kind of like a cream of wheat or a um, type of oatmeal to children that are six months to five years of age, in addition to free meals, lunch, um, to the caregiver and the child that is malnourished. In about a span of three years, we've helped over, I think it's about 650 children that are referred directly to our health center. Um, So these are, again, any uh, any child whose diagnosis is that they are low weight for their for their age and for their height and their length as we determine that they're malnourished. Um, so this center again is works very closely with the Ministry of Health and the Office of National Nutrition in terms of the referral processes for these children and offers them not only the education and the supplementary feeding, but really a follow-up afterwards at home to check in and see whether any type of behavior change has been made at the household level due to the education that we're providing them at the center. And how, as I'm assuming COVID-19 has impacted the facility as well, what changes has have occurred due to the pandemic? So due to COVID, pretty much everything has, has actually shut down in Madagascar. It was very challenging to be able to bring together, you know, 30 malnourished children and 30 caregivers in a small space. And we and the team did, definitely did not feel comfortable doing that, seeing that we were going through, um, you know, challenging times and the spread of COVID. So we did have to close down the center, but because we have a running database of our families, we decided to do food distributions in order to sustain the weight and hopefully allow these children to gain weight at home um, through the distributions of food and donations of um, supplementary foods such as oil and rice and beans um, and vegetables, but in addition, breast milk substitutes of formula to children that, that needed it. That is so impressive, especially given uh, a low resource setting and the challenges around transportation and distribution and that. So just very humbling, Charlotte. Thank you for sharing. One of my favorite stories you had told me about was about a young boy named Frederick. Could you tell us a little bit about how you came to know about him and, and your story with him? So when I was serving as a Peace Corps volunteer on the East Coast again, Peace Corps had provided me a a bike. And with this bike, I started biking to different villages because I had heard that Operation Smile, which was an American NGO that did different um, missions globally. I didn't know much about them, but I knew that they were going to be in the capital city at that time and offer free surgeries. So I would go out on my bike and visit the different surrounding villages with the intent to find um, any type of, you know, 
individual, child or adult that was suffering from cleft lip and palate and hopefully, you know, provide them access to this free surgery and the mission that was happening in Antananarivo, the capital. So one day I, you know, I, I had spoken to a community health worker and she told me that in the nearby village, around 50 kilometer, 15 kilometers away, there was a young boy by the name of Frederic. He was around 14 years old and that he had a unilateral cleft lip. Um, and maybe I would be interested in talking to him and his family and seeing, you know, if they would be willing to, to join me, um, to go up by bus again, 27 hours away to the capital city, um, to be screened and potentially, surgery. At that point, um, when I was, you know, when I got to the village, I was greeted by the chief of the village, which is very, you know, traditional and, and normal here in Madagascar. I explained to him in local language in Malagasy, which I spoke, the local East Coast dialect, you know, why I was there, that again, I had heard that there was a young boy and I wanted to talk to him and his family about this opportunity to free access to surgery and you know, would there be the potential to communicate with them? And I remember, you know, being on my bike, profusively sweating in the <laughs> sand. It was extremely hot on the East Coast. And I remember turning around and half of the village is there staring at me and they all moved back, you know, with such intent, almost, almost afraid, I suppose. Yet this little girl just stood there in the middle and she asked me in Malagasy, why do you have nail polish on your eyes. Why are your eyes a different color? And, and I have blue eyes. Um, and I think that, you know, uh, here in Malagasy culture, you, you tend to look at people in their eyes when, when you speak, that's okay. Um, that is a cultural norm. You can, you can definitely speak to someone and, and look in their eyes. I know there's different cultural traditions around the world, but she had, I think, never seen blue eyes before. And this was absolutely shocking. I think I was definitely, um, mm -hmm. you know, the first blue eyed woman she had ever seen. Um, and it, it, it really put me in my place. I think I, <laughs> I, I just remember just being, a bit um, taken back, like, okay, I'm, I'm really far off the dirt path. <laughs> I'm really in the sandy path right now. Um, so I, I ended up actually getting there a little bit too late uh, and it was starting to get dark. And so I was a bit worried and biking back in the dark. And so this older grandmother was so sweet and so kind. She gave me permission to, to stay at with her in her hut. So I slept on a straw mat. We ate rice that evening. And at about 11 PM, she, she says, you know, uh, I know where Frederic lives. This was the boy I, I was trying to find. And I'm like, okay. So we, you know, we, we stand up, we wake up, we walk through sand, through different huts to the nearest palm tree. Then we turn left, we go to a different palm tree, we turn right. And there in this small hut was Frederic, a young 14 year old boy, you know, sitting again in his, um, in his home with his mom. And I spoke to them about this opportunity to receive access to free surgery. Um, Frederic unfortunately had dropped out of school because he had been bullied and ostracized because he was different. Again, a cleft lip is, you know, it's a malformation, a facial malformation um, at birth. And so you, you can see it. And oftentimes things that are different, um, you know, children tend to, to, to notice that and, and say mean things. Um, and, and, you know, they had told him that he was different and told him that he 
you know, potentially did not look the same as them and was not accepted by his community in the way I think he would have wished he would have been. And so with his mom's permission, she was very afraid to leave the village. She had never left the village, never been on a bus, but she gave me permission to be his chaperone and bring him to, to the medical mission in the capital city a couple weeks later. So I did bring Frederic and he was the first patient of Operation Small, of which I brought. And he received surgery. He received a beautiful surgery from a phenomenal global team. And I was able to bring him back to the village and his entire community was absolutely shocked uh, to see the smile on his face and to see, you know, this newfound confidence in himself. And um, that again, I think what was the most shocking was this access to, to surgery, access to healthcare. And how that access really changed lives, changed his life and changed probably many in the, in the community. And, and I'm sure that, uh, that his experience spread word of mouth through, through many others. That's so inspiring, Charlotte. And remind me now, so it was through your experience with Frederic and you brought 75, 76 children to Operation Smile. And if I am understanding right, they eventually offered you a job because <laughs> you were uh, such a good advocate for them. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's exactly right, Joanna. So in my village, I, you know, the first year I was biking out to these remote villages, you know, with the help of community health workers that again, were working in the most remote areas, um, getting referrals from them, working on gaining the trust of my community. And throughout the first year of bringing patients up to the capital, bringing them back with this newfound smile. By the end of my third year in my Peace Corps village, children and and adults were lining up at my hut, you know, uh, telling me, oh, you're the cleft lip and palate lady. Like, we want to come with you. Can, <laughs> can we get surgery? Like, how do we do this? And in Malagasy, we call cleft lip and palate Sima. Sima is the word. And people would call me Madame Sima, you know, <laughs> Madame, Madame cleft lip and palate. Um, it was a phenomenal experience. So over the three years, yes, with the help of a beautiful community and with a lot of, uh, a lot of kilometers on my, on my bike, <laughs> I was able to bring up around um, 70 plus uh, patients that, that were all successfully received surgery. Yes. That is so exciting. And that is a lot of miles in the sand on a bike. So my uh, hats off to you <laughs> on that. Well, tell us a little bit about now with your work with Operation Smile, Charlotte. You're the nutrition program manager. What does that look like? What are kinds of things are you involved in right now? And some of the nutritional focus areas that you're working on. Yeah, so I joined, I came back to Operation Small last year in this new role as the nutrition program manager. And so I work across uh, approximately 34 of our countries. I work directly with uh, the foundations to help implement and design nutrition programs at the local level. So looking at, you know, the human resources, the needs within those different countries that we work in, in Latin America, in the MENA region, in Africa, and in Asia to look at with the hospital partnerships that they currently have and the health systems that exist in those countries, what kind of nutritional support can Operation Smile as an organization offer our patients prior to surgery um, and after surgery? So again, you know, 
Operation Smile offers cleft lip and palate surgeries, but above and beyond that, we really offer comprehensive care and this menu of non-surgical interventions to our patients in order to provide complete care, such as psychosocial care, dental care, speech care, and nutrition. And nutrition is extremely important, seeing that if you have low weight, you are unable to receive surgery at that time because um, you do not, you know, you're not a candidate for surgery due to the fact that you have low weight, due to the fact that you're malnourished. So we do screen patients very efficiently, and uh, we have a medical team, local medical teams, and global medical teams that partner together to assess and screen all of our surgical candidates. And again, if because of low weight, a child is not deemed acceptable for surgery at that time, they would be admitted into an Operation Small Nutrition Program. And so our nutrition programs this year have really taken on a life of their own. So we have a beautiful strategy that focuses on education around nutrition and social behavior change. So teaching about nutrition and healthy foods, water sanitation and hygiene, and the importance of wash in nutrition and where that liaison, where that link comes about. We also teach, depending on the cultural norms, for example, in Madagascar, we do teach about family planning and the importance of, you know, being able to take care of the children that that you have and, and what kind of not only support do they need in, in growing up, but what kind of support in terms of nutrition is afforded to them. And then we really want to focus and, and we focus on the caregivers, so the parent or the individual taking care of that child's knowledge on nutritious and safe foods that are available, affordable, and accessible that empower them to make healthy dietary choices. So what I want to, to explain a little bit more about is this three-pronged approach and, and this comprehensive model that we've developed across our countries. One, it's the screening for an early identification of malnutrition through, again, our assessment process and our screening process that our medical team is, is providing. Two, it's the education for the caregivers. And three, it's looking at capacity building uh, within the local communities by training healthcare workers, midwives, nurses in nutrition care in service to the greater community. And so right now across the world, mainly due to, to actually the pandemic, we've been able to enhance our nutrition programs exponentially and upscale them because of the enormous need globally. Um, due to the pandemic, many of our surgical programs took a, a halt and were postponed. And so we came in as an organization and focused on our comprehensive care programs in order to ensure that these patients during the pandemic were not further being challenged by the lack of food and lack of resources, but providing them a solution through our local foundations to keep the weight of their child up and also enhancing that weight. I so appreciate that holistic approach you guys are taking and in, in really taking into consideration and that focus on maintaining the nutritional status of that child um, until they are able to resume surgeries and they're able to come in. 
it bring, reminds me of the story you tell about um, a young child, Nakena, and their mom, um, who is who were with you. I, and tell me the story about that again, Charlotte. I think the our audience would love to hear that. So. Again, I'll take the case for Madagascar, although our programs are really global. Um, here in Madagascar, during a medical mission, as we like to call them, we will pre-register patients and patients will come to a certain location, for example, the capital city, and there they will be screened and assessed by a medical team to be able to see if they are a candidate for surgery. And so McKenna, I had met during this time, he was around six months when I had first met him and severely malnourished. Um, He was extremely, extremely uh, low weight, and his mom was also malnourished. Um, His mom, unfortunately, when she gave birth to Nakena, and Nakena had a bilateral cleft lip and complete palate, her husband actually was actually left her left left Nikenna and uh, and his mom because he thought that Nikenna was a bad omen for the family um, did not want anything to do with Nikenna and did not want to support uh, this child so Nikenna's mom had a very challenging time raising Nikenna from the get-go she unfortunately had a lot of troubles with breastfeeding and having, you know, the ability to have Nikenna, who has, again, a bilateral cleft lip and palate latch onto her breast. So, you know, human milk, her breast milk was not uh, feeding him. She also, you know, was living in a very remote setting where manual breast pumps or access to nutrition supplies weren't available. So she was unable to to provide him her milk through expression. And formula or breast milk substitutes are are pretty pricey here. So she was doing her best um, giving Nikenna what she could until six months of age. And then at six months of age, you know, when we had come in interaction with Nikenna and and his mom, put, um, put him on the nutrition program here in Madagascar. And at that point in time, our local nutrition volunteers and the pediatrician had assessed Nikenna and approved a prescription of care, for RUTF, and supplementary food in addition to education to really help Nikenna gain weight. And, 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 you know, successfully he did. So, RUTF is stands for ready to use therapeutic food and it's a peanut paste that has a high calorie density that is often used for severely acute malnourished children such as such as Nikenna in this case. Unfortunately, and it, it was very challenging being so close to, to, to these patients and for any patient that you come in interaction with, um, Nikenna you know, because he was so low of weight when we had come in interaction with him, had also had a multitude of different respiratory illnesses and unfortunately passed away, passed away at nine months of age. So we we were able to support him for three months when, when we had met him and his mother. But I believe that that first interaction really propelled myself and the team here to think further about the care that we were providing as an organization and the need to get closer to our patients. How was it that 
at six months of age, we came in interaction with Nikenna. How come we didn't know about Nikenna at birth? You know, and, and those questions keep me up at night. Those questions, I think, keep a lot of my team members up at night thinking, how can we bring care as close to the patient as possible and intervene as early as possible within the life cycle and those first thousand days of that child's life. So now as a nutrition program globally, we are focusing on registration as early as possible. You know, again, in many of our countries, home births are, are often you know, where the mother is, is birthing at home. So they're not having hospital births. They're not being registered births. How do we find local solutions to ensure that we know about those children, even if they are born, you know, within a hut in an extremely remote area. And I believe that that's where we need to tap into this community platform of community health workers that expands across our countries and look at uplifting their capacity and supporting them to identifying patients as early as possible so that we don't have any other, you know, unfortunate stories such as McKenna's and that we can, as an organization, help as early as possible and support emotionally this journey that mom and baby and family and baby are going through. That is such a critical point, Charlotte. I agree that the community health workers, I think are such a key, those life-saving and life-changing services of Operation Smile. And I'm sure it's the same in the other countries you're working in as well. Are are you targeting the same village health workers, community health workers to identify these patients in other countries as well? Yeah, that's right, Joanna. So we work through community health workers and the community platform. We also work through, you know, depending on the country, um, through the platforms that are trusted by the local population. For example, here in Madagascar, a large majority of the population is religious and is going to church or to a religious institution, then we actually have have had conversations with these heads of different churches and leaders or community leaders or chiefs of villages to spread the word or spread the news about Operation Smile and this access to registration um, and providing care as early as possible. We also work in numerous of our countries have what we call patient advocates or patient ambassadors which are actually parents of patients who previously received surgeries that now want to go and help and recruit patients because because they've seen the amazing work that Operation Small has done on on their child and they want to help more children um, such as the child that, that they had. You know, as we talk about this and we talk about working in these in different countries and all the different cultures uh, that you're touching, you had mentioned the term, uh, quote, walking barefoot in a country, uh, end quote, which really resonates with me um, that that you're a guest in Madagascar still 10 years in you're a guest in Madagascar as we all are when we enter into a new country, a new religion, um, a new region, a new culture. I really would love to hear you talk a little bit more about your thoughts on on the impact you have seen one person make to an individual, to a community, to a country, even to our world by walking barefoot. Can you tell us more about about that? 
think this is, um, I'm going to start coining this, my phrase, because (laughs) I really do believe in it. I believe that, you know, even 10 years later, living on this, this island, I'm still learning new things. I'm still learning new words. I'm still learning new traditions. And I think being hungry for understanding and appreciating a different culture as it's new, as it's, um, you know, as it's foreign, but becomes familiar is extremely important as we work in humanitarian aid, as we work in development, as we work in service oriented fields around the world, being able to walk barefoot, being able to appreciate the new and ask questions and, um, and communicate with, you know, with with individuals from the different countries that you're walking barefoot in and not being afraid to observe and to learn more is extremely important. You know, I'm a very strong believer that every single individual has, you know, has a purpose on this beautiful planet and that we can each do our own portion of good. And I fully do believe that if each one of us in every single day does a small portion of good really this world is becoming and will become a even better place than it is already you know a small example of things that I've, I definitely didn't know had an impact. And oftentimes, you know, you may do something, you may say something and you don't even know of its secondary impact that has on an individual. For example, when I was teaching English in my local community, again, as a Peace Corps volunteer, I had taught an English lesson language around family planning and the use of family planning and, you know, the importance of of decision-making Um, and access to family planning. And years later, I had received a message from a young girl that I had actually taught um, in in, in this high school that sent me a message and said, you know, because of that lesson, I I decided that, you know, I I really wanted to stay in school and I really did not want to have a potential unwanted pregnancy or potentially drop out of school because I could get pregnant because I didn't know about access to family planning. And I'm now in university and I'm now studying, you know, to be a midwife or a doctor. I honestly couldn't remember which one, but it's, I really think it comes back to the fact that every small action that we do, there is an immediate reaction that happens within someone, whether that's a small compliment that you're giving someone, maybe that boosts their day, whether that's, you know, a small act of kindness, a small in-kind donation, a small, you know, act of service, giving an hour of your day to help someone or, you know, it could be on a very local level or, um, but I, I think it's, it's absolutely, you know, our future is to is to consistently walk barefoot and consistently do the good work that that we're intended to do on on this earth. I love that you bring that up, Charlotte. I think I get asked probably multiple times a week by students, you know, how can I get involved? What can I do? You know, what kind of impact can I make? And I tell them all the time the same thing, right? You you can give an hour, you can give money, you can give your time, your expertise. I mean, there's no end to to the ways that you can get involved and that 
any small act uh, definitely has a big ripple effect and can impact lives beyond what you know, right? Years later, you get an email from your past student. And um, that's just really, really a, a good good message for everyone to kind of remember that those little, those little acts do add up. Well, as you kind of look forward, Charlotte, where do you hope, where do you hope to see or hope to achieve in terms of kind of uh, outcomes and impact for the nutrition program and Operation Smile? Yeah, that's great, Joanna. So I think, you know, for the future in this next decade of Operation Smile, we're just really excited to, again, start providing more support to our local foundations, uh, continuously working with the 34 countries that we're working with, uplifting local capacity through training and education that we're building out um, through nutrition curriculum and resources in order to provide the local um, health workforce trainings and education to really help their everyday job and uplift their skill sets in order to not only identify, assess, and screen children for malnutrition, but really think of that holistic prescription of care and that full circle and life cycle of nutrition for our patients. We're, you know, we're thrilled to to have phenomenal partners globally and, and really looking forward to finding innovative solutions in the most low resource settings. But we have a phenomenal team of volunteers and really great support system in, in building out this next uh, decade of, of love and care for, for our patients. Well, you humble and inspire Charlotte. So Charlotte Stepling, thank you. Thank you for your stories and sharing with us today. Uh, it really was such a pleasure to get to meet you and to talk with you. And thank you for all of your service to our world community. I really look forward to coming and walking barefoot with you in Madagascar here someday in the near future. <laughs> um, and I hope others will, will take this and move forward as, with a small act um, in some way in their lives too. Uh, with that, so Misutra Batsaka. So thank you, Charlotte Stepling, for your time today. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jana. I really appreciate it. And to our audience, if you'd like to learn more about the efforts and service of Operation Smile, please visit www.operationsmile.org. Uh, you can also find Operation Smile on Instagram and Facebook and also on our Global Nutrition webpage. Um, again, thank you, and we look forward to our next episode.